He is risen. He is risen indeed. Praise the Lord. And it's because of that reason uh, that we come to learn more about God and to open up His Word. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. Those are the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. And if you're using one of the black Bibles provided underneath the chairs, you'll find our text on page 847. That's page 847. And if you're new to reading the Bible, uh, just to be extra clear, you'll see the large numbers in the text, and then you'll see small numbers. Those large numbers are chapters, and then the small numbers are verses. So just for reference sake, uh, we're in Mark 11, and then find the little number 12, and then that'll help you follow along a little easier. Uh, We have reached a part in Mark's Gospel, and I think I I should probably say that uh, with it being Easter Sunday... Uh, This is a unique time in which our our country recognizes uh, the resurrection of Christ, at least in some way. Whether or not they celebrate it, uh, it is at least acknowledged. Uh, What we're doing today is not really anything abnormal or different from what we always do. And the reason for that is because Christians have always met on the first day of the week to celebrate the very resurrection of Christ. Uh, and so what we're doing this morning is what Christians have done all throughout history since Jesus did get up from the, day, did get up from the grave. We're going to open up his word and study it, see what, what it says, uh, determine what it means, and how we can apply it to our lives. Let me just lead us in prayer one more time before we jump into the text. Heavenly Father, we do uh, pray for one more time for uh, those who are aware of the holiday of Easter, but do not believe in Jesus, that do not believe that he got up from the grave. Lord, we pray that uh, just the simple fact that this day was considered so significant to be made a, a holiday nationally, that it would cause them to question and to return to uh, the, histor- the history of Christ's claim and the disciples' claim that Jesus got up from the grave. Lord, we pray that they would examine these claims and see them as true, that you would draw more people to yourself, uh, even through uh, this day, whether or not they are in church. Lord, we pray that you would uh, bless our time in your word this morning. Uh, Give us uh, clarity, once again, by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, as I said last week, we are at the beginning of the end of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, That is, basically, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. He has arrived to Jerusalem. Uh, This was basically the destination of his journey throughout most of the book. And uh, so this is becoming the climax of Jesus' ministry. And we can tell that it's that important because Mark spends a third of his entire gospel just talking about this one week. Uh, I mentioned last week that John, in his gospel, spends half of his entire gospel going through the events that happened. So this is a really important part of Jesus' ministry. And he is journeying to the city Jerusalem during the time of Passover, where there would have been many pilgrims going as well. And as we looked at last week, Jesus made an entrance that really is only fitting for a king. People laid their garments down before him as he walked on a donkey and laid branches down and sang Hosanna towards him. That would have been quite the claim to authority already. But then we notice in verse 11 that the passage ended in a strange way. Jesus seemed to enter the city by himself. 
go into the temple, look around, and then nothing really happened. It was late, so he left. Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus returns to the temple. And this time, it's a little bit more eventful than the last time. This time, Jesus is going to challenge the religious authorities in an even uh, bolder statement than he did in the previous passage. So with all of that being said, let's go ahead and read our text this morning. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money chargers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is God's holy word. This event is one of the strangest events in Jesus' life. Uh, I think it's safe to say. It's actually referred to as a miracle. uh, And it it is, you might be interested to know, the last miracle in Mark's gospel. And sometimes scholars have called it a miracle of destruction. Uh, And I suppose it is a miracle in the sense that something supernatural happens that wouldn't normally happen. But it's just strange to call something a miracle of destruction, isn't it? Uh, It has perplexed many people. Some critics of Christianity and the Bible have even pointed to this event to uh, show an example that Christ is not someone that we should follow morally, Uh, that Christ is not a virtuous person. He shows vindictive fury here on this tree. Uh, One scholar said, It is a tale of miraculous power, Wasted in the service of ill temper. Uh, Like, surely Jesus could have found something more useful and more productive to do with his power, right? Well, I think what you'll find is some of those understandings are a little bit shallow of what is going on here. And Christians throughout history have understood something far deeper uh, in meaning when it comes to these texts. But I think to understand it best, uh, we're just going to begin with the things that are clear and then work our way out to the things that are less clear. Uh, So first, I want you to look at Jesus' visit to the temple. And uh, we'll call this point one, 
God cares about our worship. God cares about our worship. Uh, This is mostly uh, verses 15 through 18. Jesus appears to be on a mission. Uh, Like we stated this time, he's going to do more than just look around the temple. Uh, Jesus goes in and he begins acting. Uh, He physically drives people out who are selling and buying. And that word drives out is the same word that is used for cast out, you know, when he's casting out demons, for example. Uh, Jesus seems to be using force here, literally flipping tables and driving them out, not letting anyone carry anything into the temple. So he's blocking people with his body. It's like a protest almost in the temple, either preventing people from, from bringing dirty sacrifices, which I think is happening, I'll explain in a minute, or he's just simply stopping more merchants from coming in to the temple to sell their goods. But this is a remarkable thing for Jesus to do. We don't see a kind of angry Jesus very often in the Bible. But it is a kind of righteous anger. And this event, I think, could be an example that you can point to to show that Jesus is more than just a moral teacher. I think the religious authorities would have recognized this as a radical act and challenge to their authority over the temple itself. So there's a few things that we need to uh, know about the temple to understand what Jesus is doing. First, the temple is the core of the people's religious and national identity. The core of the people's religious and national identity. It's a symbol of the Lord's presence among the people of Israel to the rest of the world. And it was, through their history, the resting place for God's presence. So after God rescued the people from Egypt, this is a brief history lesson for you, Uh, after he rescued them from Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai, and Moses would go up and meet with God on the mountain in the cloud, and he gave them the, the law, making a covenant with them, but then he would lead them through the wilderness, and so he uh, instructed Moses to build a tent that is called the tabernacle, and sometimes also referred to as the tent of meeting, so that the Lord could go with them on their travels, and they could follow him uh, on their travels. Well, that tabernacle eventually uh, is turned or constructed into a temple in Solomon's day and consecrated by him, and it is a symbol that God has been faithful to bring them into the, the promised land and then will dwell with them. But the temple that Jesus is in is actually not the same temple as that temple. Uh, Israel sinned grievously against the Lord once they were in the land. Uh, if you read through the book of Second Kings, you will just notice, it, it is basically answering the question, uh, <laughs> what happened? What went wrong? Uh, because it's written while Israel has been exiled out of the land. And you'll just read king after king that does heinous sin, leads the people in immorality. And so God eventually judges them by using the Babylonians to sweep them off of their land, destroy the temple, and drag them into exile once again. Uh, You can read that account in 2 Kings 25. But after being in exile for about 70 years, some people were allowed to return to the land and rebuild another temple And that temple that was rebuilt is the one that Jesus is in, uh, in in our text this morning. And then you can read, of course, about the building of this temple and its rededication in the books Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, But it's a strange event to read about. Because if you compare it with Solomon's dedication of the temple, there is just not as much celebrating in it. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah themselves 
seem unhappy because uh, the worship is not sincere. So what the prophets uh, prophesied about does not seem to be coming true. And there is no sign at all of the, the glory of the Lord returning to the temple after leaving previously. Even still, it remains the heart of the nation. And so it should have been treated like sacred ground, a place of worship and sacrifice and prayer for the people. Uh, Another thing you have to know about this uh, temple is that it was massive. Uh, It was very large. It had four courts, uh, one for Gentiles, one for women, one for Jews, and then the Holy of Holies, which was the most sacred where the, the Ark of the Covenant was to be. Uh, And in in its entirety, this temple covered 35 acres. Um, So I don't have a great way of of envisioning how large that is. I just don't measure acres very well. I don't know about you. But it's quite large. Uh, So nearby, we have one of the largest temples, Buddhist temples, in the Western Hemisphere, supposedly. Uh, And it's about half the size of this. And if you've driven past it, it is not small. But that's just to give you an idea. This is a huge courtyard that Jesus is in. And the largest one would have been the one on the outside, which is the court of the Gentiles. So what exactly is going on here? Uh, Well, there's a scandal going on in the temple. And that scandal is that the temple no longer functions as a house of prayer, but it has been transformed basically into a marketplace, a huge shopping center. Uh, It's full of merchants buying and selling, which would have made it nearly impossible to pray. Just think about if this was the one place appointed uh, for a Gentile nation or a foreigner to come and pray, and then you've got lots of vendors around, lots of buzzing noise and traffic. Uh, It's not exactly the most welcoming prayer environment. But not only have they turned a sacred place into a common one, but the business itself that is going on happens to be an incredibly corrupt business. And why do I say that? Well, we get a hint in verse 17, where Jesus calls it a den of robbers. Uh, Remember that this is Passover week, which means lots of people are traveling from all over to celebrate. And so the leaders of the temple saw an opportunity to make a little bit of profit on those who were traveling. Uh, So they would have what's called a temple tax for you to come in. You had to pay a temple tax. And this was a normal thing, except for that you couldn't use ordinary money that you brought in you had to get your money exchanged for a temple coin, which was basically half a shekel. Uh, And the point is, the the currency rates in that exchange were totally imbalanced, meaning you would lose a lot of money in exchanging uh, your money to this temple tax, and then they would pocket the profit. Uh, They would also sell animals to sacrifice. Uh, So this was a place of sacrifice, and... Uh, there was basically an opportunity for people who didn't have animals to buy animals at the temple so they could sacrifice them. Uh, But with people traveling, it was also a convenience. Uh, You know, instead of bringing your animal for however far away you traveled from, you could simply bring some money, exchange it for an animal, sacrifice it, no problem. And for many, uh, they may not have even had the choice Uh, but to buy what was offered in the temple. Uh, So think of just the poorer people who would have been uh, on their pilgrimage, coming to the temple, didn't even own land perhaps, didn't have an animal, didn't have money uh, typically to buy one. They would be at the mercy of whatever the cost is at the temple. I think we've all had 
some kind of experience like this. And I'm just going to go for the easiest examples I can think of, which is basically airports and movie theaters. I don't think it's the same kind of corruption that's going on here, but man, they jack up the prices, don't they? Uh, what is normally 99 cents at the grocery store for popcorn might cost you $13 at the, at the movies. Or in the airport, you can basically pay quadruple what you would normally pay for a gas station snack. Uh, or double what you would pay for, say, a phone charger. Uh, but why do they do that? Well, they do that because you're at their mercy. You're trapped. Uh, you don't have the option of going somewhere else, and you have a need. And they've provided that need for you. And so you have to pay what they charge. Well, it's been estimated that the upcharge in the temple could have been as high as 16 times the amount of what an animal would have cost. That's quite a commission, isn't it? And this was a huge business. So to give you an idea, a historian named Josephus said that in 66 AD, uh, he recorded that during the Passover, over 255 1,000 lambs were sacrificed, 255,000 animals, uh, lambs at least. Perhaps there were even more than that. But that's just to give you an idea of the scale of the money that is being made and the people that are being taken advantage of all in the name of religion and holiness. The most telling detail for me is the mention of pigeons in verse 15. Now, why do I say that? Well, the reason is because in the book of Leviticus, which outlines the rules for sacrifice, pigeons were basically given as an allowance to the poor that couldn't afford larger animals, couldn't afford a goat or a lamb. You could offer a pigeon because they were much cheaper. Uh, So it was a kindness for those who were less fortunate in the land. But what it means here is that the poor especially are the ones who are being taken advantage of inside the temple. These are the reasons that Jesus, I think, is angry and begins to drive people away and turn tables over. But that's not all he does, does he? Uh, Not only does he make a drastic demonstration, but he teaches powerfully while he does it. In verse 17, he teaches from two different Old Testament prophets, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah. We we read Isaiah earlier, uh, and and I'll get to that passage in a few minutes. But the phrase, den of robbers, specifically comes from Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. And uh, in that context, Jeremiah is pronouncing judgment from the Lord against Israel. He's saying, you people need to repent because of your hypocrisy. He's saying, you come and you proclaim the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They have a false security. Listen to what the Lord says in Jeremiah 7, 8 through 11. He says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Uh, The Lord says that he sees behind the facade of the hypocrisy that is happening among the people. And Jesus, in making this connection, is basically saying the same thing about how the temple is operating in his day. He says their worship is 
defiled with the stain of hypocrisy. You have turned the temple from a place of worship into a place for commercialism. Jesus calling out the temple in this way would have been a direct challenge. And you'll notice that Mark makes a point to say that the chief priests heard what he said and wanted to kill him. The temple uh, could be perhaps likened to uh, a decaying tooth. Uh, I use this example in my own life because I think one of the worst places to go is the dentist. All right? It's just a horrible place. I'm so sorry if you work with teeth. I apologize. Uh, But I have had multiple bad experiences at the dentist. And one of the reasons is because Uh, you don't really see it coming when you need work done until suddenly it hurts and then you go and you find out your tooth is decaying from the inside and you have a cavity and you need to get it filled. Uh, Well, if you're like me and you wait until it's just unbearably painful, uh, then perhaps the decay is uh, really bad and you need something like a crown, uh, which basically just delays the process of the tooth totally decaying. Um, I'm not a dentist, but this is what I understand from what they did to me. (laughs) They put two rods in. Uh, to secure the root of the tooth, and then put a a fake tooth, a crown on top of it. Well, it's kind of inevitable that eventually it's going to start decaying again. But the interesting thing is you can't really see it through x-rays because the crown's covering it. Uh, Or if that's not true, then I just didn't have a very good dentist the last time I checked. Uh, But it's a little bit like what's going on in the temple. From the outside, everything looks normal. It gives the impression that it is a place for worship. It gives the impression that it is doing what it's supposed to do. But when you peel back the layers, you see the corruption and the pollution that's happening on the inside. There is no spiritual fruit happening whatsoever. And so Jesus proclaims judgment on the temple and the leaders of the temple especially. Well, now that we understand that, let's look at what happened just before and after Jesus went into the temple. So we can call this point two. God cares about our witness. God cares about our worship, uh, namely that it not just be external only, but uh, from the heart. Point two, God cares about our witness. And this is the, the instance of the fig tree. Uh, Jesus is on the way to the temple. Uh, we read it already, but he, he hungers. He sees a nice leafy tree, and so he goes to inspect it, and then what he, he finds is that there's actually no fruit in it at all. And so he curses it. And... Uh, Really, he just says, may no one ever eat from you, but we know from verse 21 that Peter understood that he was cursing it. And as the result, they observe later in verse 20 is that the the tree withers. It's a really strange event. And before we go into the meaning of it, I want to just point out the fact that Jesus hungers in this passage. Uh, I, I don't want to skip over clear doctrine in Scripture without at least pointing it out so that you know where to go. Uh, when you need to explain to someone uh, that Jesus was human. Jesus faced real hunger, just like we do. It's a sign of his humanity. Remember that the Lord of heaven took on the weakness of human flesh, facing the ordinary trials and difficulties that we all face today. This is important because we need to remember that he knows our trials and our weaknesses, that he obeyed God perfectly, despite being tempted as we are. And so we know that he can sympathize with us in our time of need. 
All right, so what's going on with this tree? Uh, This miracle is perhaps most confusing because of what Mark says in verse 13, that it was not the season for figs. Uh, And that just makes us think, this seems unfair. Why would Jesus expect figs or fruit from a tree when it's outside of its fruit-bearing season? Uh, That's what most most people think when they read this passage. Uh, It doesn't seem to make sense in that way. But Jesus noticed that it was in leaf. And as it turns out, there were a few species or are a few species in the area of tree that bloom and bear fruit outside of the normal fruit-bearing season. But that's not really the point. The point is, one of the telltale signs to know whether or not a tree has fruit is that it is in leaf, that it is in full bloom when it comes to foliage. So Jesus saw from a distance that the tree showed the promise the promising signs of having fruit, even though it was not in season, and upon further investigation discovered that it was really barren. It had the appearance of a fruitful tree, yet it produced none of the fruit. And so Jesus cursed the tree. But if we stop right there, cursing a tree is still still kind of a strange action, isn't it? That leads us to ask what I think might be a fair question. Uh, Why didn't Jesus just cause the tree to bear more fruit so that he could eat of it? Uh, He's brought bread from the wilderness. It doesn't seem like too much of a stretch, right, to ask why he didn't just produce fruit himself to eat. Well, that question, I think, really unlocks this uh, this whole event for us. The fig tree in the Old Testament is actually a symbol for Israel, and has been used in multiple different prophets to describe withering in judgment. Uh, But even aside from that, because there's not really direct connections to those references, it's just common throughout the prophets, his cursing the tree is a parable for the disciples of the temple. That's why the temple event is sandwiched in between Jesus cursing the tree and then the disciples seeing that it's withered away. Uh, The Spirit inspired Mark to record in the way that he did. Uh, And Mark has done this multiple times in his gospel. This is actually what scholars call a Markan sandwich. He introduces one thing, then he talks about another thing, and then he returns to the first thing. And it's just a literary construction to show readers that the two relate to one another in some way. So the key for us is the fact that Mark tells us in verse 14 that the disciples heard what Jesus said. They heard it, and they would later see that curse come to pass, meaning Jesus uses the fig tree much like the prophets used uh, illustrations or actions to proclaim judgment against the people, though Jesus does it against the temple. Because like the fig tree appeared to be in season and yet had no fruit, so the temple has the appearance of being a place for worship, yet it is full of corruption. Both are full of promise, yet neither bear any fruit. And notice the connection in verse 18. Just as the disciples heard the curse on the fig tree, the chief priests and scribes heard Jesus' pronouncement on the temple as well, showing that neither would provide food for the people. Jesus is pointing out yet again the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. But he's doing even more than that. He's showing that the temple is no longer the place to meet with God and experience His presence. 
It's no longer the place to make sacrifice because soon the final sacrifice would be made once and for all. Jesus himself would offer himself as the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb, as John calls him. Jesus himself is also the true temple of the living God. It is in him that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus' statement about no one ever eating from the tree again is uh, an eschatological statement about the temple. It's a statement about end times, final judgment, that it will no longer be needed. And the prophecy comes true at the moment of Christ's death, when the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. Jesus said elsewhere that uh, no stone would remain on itself, but it would be torn down brick by brick. And that prophecy also came true in the year 70 AD when the Romans came and destroyed that temple, second temple, which has not been rebuilt since then. This is the end of the use of the temple and the beginning of salvation to all nations. The temple was not just a place for worship for the Jews, uh, but was indeed for all nations. Uh, So Israel has always been meant to act like a bridge between the other nations and God. In Genesis 12, 3, God promises Abraham that he's going to bless all the families of the earth. In Exodus 19, Israel is described as a priesthood or nation of priests for the world. And then we read in Isaiah 56, verse 7, right, how the Lord would welcome in people from all lands. Salvation would come through Christ to all the nations. That section of Isaiah that we read earlier in the service, that Victor read, it speaks about outsiders enjoying the full rights of worshiping God, meaning they're not just limited to the outer court in the temple, but they enjoy all of the rights that any other Jew would have uh, enjoyed. That's why Paul would say in the Romans that the Gentiles have been grafted in. Uh, That's why Jesus would say in John 4 that we worship in spirit and truth. You know, hypocrisy is a double-edged sword. Uh, It is especially damning for both the hypocrites and those who follow them. Uh, It is deceitful. Those who engage in hypocrisy deceive themselves into thinking they're fine when they're not. And then those who are misled by them may be hardened towards religion forever because they've been misled. So what can we say about this? How can we apply this to our lives? Well, friends, anytime uh, hypocrisy is mentioned in the Bible, we need to take a special uh, amount of care in examining our own lives because we are the religious, which means we are most susceptible to it, uh, right? Practically speaking, because of what was going on at the temple, we can say that things like church attendance, things like getting baptized, reading your Bible even, taking the Lord's Supper, None of those things save you. Those are things that should follow a repentant heart and a changed heart in worship. But the outward observance of them does not do anything for you when it comes to standing before God in judgment. Brothers and sisters, we rely totally and completely on the great high priest, Jesus. And it is only through his death that we are granted access to the Father, Each one who turns from their sins and puts their faith in 
Christ is made a new creation. And Jesus promises his spirit fills their hearts, enabling us to obey with true and sincere worship. Each believer then in the new covenant is like a miniature temple because the spirit of God dwells in each one of us. That's why we are called the body of Christ. And this is why in the new covenant, this simply can't happen. Uh, We are a church that's congregational, which means it's up to the members to decide the doctrine of the church. So we need to decide and to make sure that we are always engaged with heartfelt convictions for what we believe and not simply just going through the motions, deceiving ourselves with our actions while we have a hard heart towards the Lord. That could happen in any particular local church. But because of what the new covenant church is, it can never happen to the true people of God. The universal church is totally made up of people who are reborn, people who are new creations. Uh, Therefore, because Christ is our high priest, uh, we are all sanctified by his blood. God cares about our witness. And God cares about the nations. Uh, He doesn't want them to be misled or deceived. That's what's going on here. They want, he wants them to worship him rightly. What might be seen as a heart, harsh outlash against uh, an innocent tree uh, should be seen not only as a sobering judgment against the temple, but it should be seen as an act of love for the nations, for the poor, for the marginalized. Look how God cares for them. Uh, that's why we said that the service is uh, themed with God being a jealous God. Uh, he is jealous for the the affections and the love and the worship of his people. And it is a righteous jealousy. And therefore, he is protective of them. And that's why Jesus curses this tree and pronounces judgment on the temple. The Lord does not want anyone to be deceived, but wishes all would know him and come to repentance. So, brothers and sisters, beware of the false fruit of hypocrisy. Uh, In reality, it is barren, even though it shows promise on the outside. Point three, God cares about our prayer life. This is verses 19 through 25. God cares about our prayer life. If hypocrisy is the fruit of false worship, we could say, prayer is the fruit of sincere worship. True faith shows itself in prayer. So what, what is prayer? Prayer is not only just talking to God, it is that conversing with him, but prayer is also relying and trusting on him for the things in your life. It's the natural outpouring of worship from a changed heart in response to God. When you think about prayer by itself, just the very fact that you uh, talk to the Lord and ask him for something shows that you rely on him to grant your requests, doesn't it? Anyone can pray to God. Praise be to God. Because of the work of Christ. Because Jesus died and rose again, we have unlimited access to the Father at all times and in all places. We don't have to go on a pilgrimage to a temple to meet with him. We can talk to God at any time. So friends, do you take advantage of that kind of 24-7 access to God? Does your life show this kind of true spiritual fruit or just the misleading appearance of fruit. Faith in God manifests itself in our lives as prayer. It's interesting that this is the only section in Mark's gospel in which uh, Jesus instructs 
about prayer. It's the only time he talks about it. He talks about it at length in other Gospels. It's recorded elsewhere. But I think there's a reason that Mark decides to include the teaching here. I do think it relates to the fig tree and the temple. Uh, Look at verses 22 through 24 again. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Uh, We have to be really careful with these verses. Uh, These verses are tricky, aren't they? And uh, I can just be frank and say, I think bad theology has come about from misinterpreting these verses. Uh, So uh, the movement, the the name it and claim it movement, for example, uh, sometimes referred to as the prosperity church, uh, believes because of verses like these that if you simply believe hard enough that God will give you something, that he will give it to you. So the two mistakes that we might make in reading these verses is first, we think the answer of our prayer depends on the amount of faith or the amount of desire that we have when asking for it. Or the other mistake we might make in reading these verses is to think that God will give us anything we ask for, right? That there's no limits. Let me just take each one of those at a time. So first, the idea that our faith, if our faith is strong enough, God will answer our prayers. We have a way of making everything about ourselves, sometimes, don't we? Uh, And that's what happens when people read passages like this in the Bible and make those deductions. These verses are not about us. They are not about what we want or about our power, but are about God's power, about what God wants. Jesus is using their amazement at what happened to the fig tree as a way of demonstrating his power. And he uses it to then compare with something much greater, namely moving a mountain. Remember he said something similar back in chapter 10. Uh, He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are confused because this is obviously an impossible thing to do. And so they ask, probably in distress, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's using the example of what would ordinarily be impossible to move a mountain. And he's using it to illustrate how powerful God is. It's like he's saying, you think what happened to that fig tree was impressive? Oh, friends, whoever has faith in God can move mountains. But here's the important part. They can't move mountains because their faith is so great. They move mountains because the God of their faith is so great. That's why he begins by saying, have faith in God. He's using figurative language, saying, hey, things may seem impossible in your life, and those things that seem impossible to you are not impossible for God. So you should pray without doubting. Remember that prayer is relying on God's strength and not our own. Okay, so what about the second thing? Will God just give us anything we ask for if we believe hard enough? Even if we believe in God's power, uh, right? I think that's what a lot of people think, and that's the way they make those prayers. In short, no. And the reason, practically speaking, 
is because it would make God a slave to us. It means that ultimately he would have to do whatever we wanted. But friends, that's not God at all. That just describes a genie in the bottle that will grant whatever we wish if we believe hard enough. And when you think about it, it's this kind of belief that makes us our own little gods, doesn't it? It assumes that we know what's best for ourselves in any given circumstance. It assumes we know every possibility and we know the outcome of our lives. And there couldn't be a better option than what we want, and therefore we must have the thing that we're praying for. Friends, I hope you see how horrible of an idea that is. Not only that, but what if your prayer isn't what's best for you? What if your prayers are selfish or even bring you harm? How could God be good if he always gave you the things that you asked for? Uh, We in sinners, we don't always pray, we being sinners, don't always pray perfectly, do we? But praise be to God, that's not what he's like. Instead, he knows all things and he promises to work out all things for the good of those who love him. So we can trust that even when we don't understand how he's going to work things out for good, that he will. And that it'll become clear when our faith becomes sight. These verses assume that the God worshiper, the one praying, loves God and therefore believes that the will of God is more important than their own. It assumes we are thinking and praying biblically, as Jesus taught in Matthew 6, that his kingdom would come and that his will be done, would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus modeled prayer this way, and he did it marvelously even up to the moments of his death. Jesus prayed in the garden. If there was any way to remove the cup of what was about to happen, his crucifixion, that the Lord would do it. Yet even so, your will be done, he said. Jesus prayed, your will be done, even if the answer to my prayer is no. So friends, pray what you know to be the Lord's will. And for everything else that you're unsure about, have humility and the faith to trust in whatever God's plans are for your life. It may seem impossible for you to see your faith grow stronger during the time of trial, for example. So how do we know what is the Lord's will for our lives, right? That may be an example of something that seems impossible, but the Lord tells us in the book of James to count it joy when we meet trials of various kinds because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. So we can pray that the Lord would make us steadfast in trials. We know that that's his will, and the Spirit will be pleased to answer that prayer in our lives. He will continue and complete the work begun in us. One way that I've found helpful to guard my prayers Uh, In thinking about making biblical prayers, it doesn't mean you just never ask for something that's uh, that you know you're unsure about. I think you can you can pray your desires and your feelings. The Lord wants to hear what uh, His children have on their minds and on their hearts. But one way that I found helpful to keep me on track, if it if you if you want to put it that way, is to just incorporate the language of Scripture into your prayers. Use the language that you read in Scripture and that you see in prayers in the Bible to inform your own prayer life. Your prayers should be similar uh, to what we see in Scripture. And this is just a wonderful way to teach your children, right, what the, the will of the Lord is, to use the language of Scripture and then teach them the Scripture where you see it. Biblical prayer requires us to trust in the power of God to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible.
it requires us, namely, to be forgiving people, right? Look again at verse 25. He says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Christians are to be forgiving people. And the reason is because we have been forgiven. We who have experienced the love of Christ and who have been convicted of our own unworthiness have no right to hold sin against anyone else when the Lord has not held our sin against us. Forgiveness, uh, if you want a definition, here's how I would define forgiveness. Forgiveness is a decision to not hold something against another person despite what they have done to you. It's a decision to not hold something against another person despite what they have done to you. This doesn't mean that you just simply forget what happened. It doesn't mean that you just ignore what happened. And uh, it doesn't mean also that your relationship will return to what it once was. Sometimes, uh, realistically, relationships change after certain events. But it does entrust judgment to God. It releases any bitterness or hatred that you might have been tempted to harbor against another person. And it releases those things from your heart because the Lord has forgiven you. It trusts that God will perfectly judge everyone and all sin will be accounted for. Note that Jesus is not saying that you can earn your salvation by forgiving people. That's just not what he's saying. He's saying that those who have experienced forgiveness should be characterized by a spirit of forgiving others. And so true fruit in worship plays itself out in our lives in relying on God through prayer and forgiving others. In conclusion, it occurred to me that Jesus didn't prevent the tree from bearing fruit. It was already failing to do that. He merely made the current state or the health of that tree apparent to those around it. The Bible says that we all were once dead in our trespasses and sins. Friends, we were no different from that tree before Christ, unable to produce any fruit in our own lives. What's more, the Bible says that Christ became the curse for us. He became the tree that was cursed. He who knew no sin took our sin upon himself and nailed it to the cross. And by the mercy of Christ, through his resurrection, which we celebrate today, we are reminded that death has been defeated, that death has no claim on us. So when you think about the resurrection, remember not only the hope that you have in heaven after death, but remember that you have been freed from death already in the past. And Christ's death, his work on the cross in ransoming sinners has made a way for us all to be able to approach God. Our prayers would not reach the Father without his mercy and love shown to us in Christ. One author and pastor summarized it well by saying this. We know that God will answer us when we call because one terrible day he did not answer when Jesus called. Jesus' prayers were given the rejection that we sinners merit so that our prayers can have the reception that he merits. 
True faith expresses itself in prayer, trusting and relying on God's power and forgiveness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning because in love you sent your Son, innocent as he was, to become a curse for us. Or you gave us models of the temple in the heavens by creating a garden. And in sin, humanity corrupted that garden. You replaced it with the tabernacle and then the temple. And our sin too corrupted these. But in Jesus, the true temple and the true sacrifice, obedience was upheld perfectly. And so we have access to you through the mercy of Christ. Father, we praise you for this provision for us. And help us to live a life that relies and does not doubt in your word. Help us to be a forgiving people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.